Good morning. I want to uh, welcome all of the visitors and all of those who were, weren't here last week. Um, we are going to have to give you a, a speedy overview of last week's message just to bring you up to date on where we're at uh, because this is a follow-up message uh, from last week. So if you have a, uh, does anybody need a Bible? Let's start there. Anybody need a Bible? Uh, Michael, we need two here. Anybody else that might need a Bible? Um, okay, if not, come close to people next to you and a couple over here. All right, so let's turn today to Matthew chapter 24. The subject of the message last week, this week, and for the next couple of weeks is on the second coming of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot to cover, and there are a lot of passages dealing with the second coming and different aspects of it. But um, this is a parallel passage to our study in the book of Luke. And we're going to look, first of all, at Matthew chapter 24 and begin reading at verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, that's Jesus, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. He's talking about his coming, the the destruction of the temple and the uh, second coming. And they're saying to him, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So there are three questions. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Um, Last week we saw that there are two key phrases that we have to address first before we can get into the details of the second coming. The first one is found in the same passage. Skip down to verse uh, 15. Jesus said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and in your Bibles it should say, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes, But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Okay, we're going to end there for, for that passage. So one of the keys is found in this passage, the term or the phrase, the abomination of desolation. When you see that event take place, Jesus said, flee. Okay? And he's talking specifically to people who are in Jerusalem. They are to flee to the mountains around Judea and to get out of town as quickly as possible. Not even to go back and lock the door. Not even to go back and get a second set of clothes. Just get out and get out now. As soon as you see it, go. So what is the abomination of desolation? We're going to look at that in a minute. Second phrase is found in Luke 21, 24. I'll just read it to you. And Jesus said this, and they will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until, and here's the key phrase, the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
And so there's a period of time when the Gentiles will dominate or rule over Jerusalem. And that period is something we're going to look at as well. We're going to take the second question first. What does it mean, the times of the Gentiles uh, being fulfilled? It refers to a period of time when Jerusalem is, as I say, dominated by Gentile nations. It is actually captured by Gentile nations. It is ruled by Gentile kings. And it is really not under the complete control of the Jewish people for whom it was given originally. And that period of time um, started at the time of the Babylonian Empire when the Babylonians came into Jerusalem, they sacked the city, they destroyed the temple, and they led God's people away into captivity. The Babylonian captivity lasted for 70 years. And during that time, uh, Jerusalem was a wasteland. It was desolate. And uh, it remained under uh, Gentile domination uh, throughout its, the rest of its history, even to this day in reality. It will continue until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's when the end of the times of the Gentiles will be. So it's not fulfilled yet. Um, when we began looking at the subject of the second coming last week, we looked back at the prophet Daniel. Daniel had, there were two dreams that we looked at last week. One was a dream of a king, Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon at that time. And he had this dream that he wanted uh, interpreted. And he wouldn't tell any of his wise men what the dream was about. And he said, you tell me what the dream is, and then I'll know that your interpretation is right. And if you can't do that, you're dead men. And he started killing his wise men because he couldn't tell them the dream. Try that on your husband or your wife or your kids next time. You know, hey, tell me my dream last night. Are you kidding me? But that's what he wanted. So he, um, Daniel prayed with his friends, and, and God gave him the interpretation of that dream. And last week we began to look at that dream and what it, had to, uh, what it meant. So let's take a look at, we're going to go back to the book of Daniel. Daniel said this when God gave him the interpretation. He said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. As you may remember, last week we said that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, to hide something. But it is the glory of kings to search it out. And so we really, God has, uh, in the scripture, hidden a lot of truths. And it's our responsibility to dig, dig into the scripture and find out what those are. Because he's given us the clues. He's given us the answer in the scripture. And so we read about... Uh, the dream. And in the dream, uh, if you guys can put the uh, image up there for me, um, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of an image, and the image had a head of gold. And the interpretation of that was that uh, Daniel said, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold. You are the king over the empire of Babylon. You are the head of gold in this image. The second part of the image was, uh, was um, from the Shoulders down, the arms and the... Are we up there yet? 
they are really having technical difficulty today. <laughs> okay, so the second part was the, uh, of the image was silver, and it was the arms and the upper body, and it represented the Medo-Persian uh, empire that came in after Babylon. The third section was bronze, and it represented the um, Grecian Empire under uh, Alexander the Great, who conquered the world, and he um, was a world-dominated uh, empire that he had. The fourth and final empire was the uh, legs of iron, and it represented the Roman Empire um, that came in after Alexander. The final empire in this picture is the revived Roman Empire, which is represented by feet made of iron and clay. Iron and clay does not mix, and it's a strong and weak form of a government combined together. There are ten toes in these two feet, and those ten toes represent ten kings that will come in the latter days and uh, will dominate the world as a revived Roman Empire. Then we learned that Daniel had a dream. And in Daniel's dream, he saw the same Gentile nations who were represented not by an image, but instead they were represented by beasts. And the first beast in his dream was a lion with wings, again, representing Babylon. Then there was a bear with three ribs in its mouth, representing the Medo-Persian Empire, and its con the three ribs represent its conquests over Egypt, over Babylon, and over Asia Minor. Then it was followed by a leopard with wings, representing Alexander the Great uh, Grecian Empire. The, the wings on this leopard, the leopard is already a swift animal. Add wings to it and it's faster still. And, and uh, Alexander conquered the world with great speed. And uh, in his early 30s, he, was a, he had conquered the world. In fact, when, upon his death, I mentioned this last week, he asked for his hands to be left outside of his coffin open so that they, people would see that here was a man who had conquered the whole world and still died with nothing. He ends up leaving it all behind. The four heads on this beast represent the fact that upon Alexander's death, he left the uh, kingdom to four generals who took over and they uh, continued on in the same kingdom. So the fourth part of Daniel's dream was a ferocious beast. You have to recognize that the, the beast that we'll show here, it's an artist's rendition of what it might have looked like. We have no idea what they really looked like apart from the description that we have in the scripture. Um, but it was a ferocious beast that came up and conquered the world. It had iron teeth and it was the Roman Empire. And this is where we pick up our story from last week. The fourth beast, dreadful teeth of iron, Roman Empire. So if you have your Bibles open to Daniel chapter 7, we're going to look at this in, um, in detail. Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to begin reading in verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth, and it was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Okay, let's stop right here. So I've been telling you that each of these beasts 
and each of these metals on the idol represent kingdoms. How do I know that? How do I know that that's what they really represent? Well, the best way to figure out what figures in the Bible mean is to look at the Bible. And if God so often tells us the answer right in the passage that we're looking at. So we're going to look at both the vision that Daniel had and the interpretation of this vision at the same time so that you can see that the Bible clearly tells us what Daniel is um, seeing, what it represents. So skip ahead a couple of verses to verse 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all of this. So he told me and made me known or made known to me the interpretation of these things. These are those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which rise out of the earth. Okay, so there's the answer. How do we know they're kings? Because that's the interpretation. It's in the Bible. They represent four, king, uh, four kings. So we have four beasts, and the interpretation is that there are four kings that arise out of the earth, and we know that these kings represent four kingdoms. The fourth kingdom in Daniel's uh, vision has ten horns, which correspond, by the way, with the ten toes that we saw in last week's uh, vision. The ten represent ten kings that rise from the rubble of the Roman Empire and establish a new Roman Empire, a revived Roman Empire, um, in very possibly our day. That kingdom, we learn in the scripture, will be destroyed by God. So we know one thing about that kingdom. Uh, Between the um, time that the Roman Empire kind of dissolved and now, there has to be another kingdom that arises, and it has to be a worldwide kingdom. It has to be a kingdom that is represented by ten heads of state, ten kings. And those ten kings will rule over all the world, um, and it'll be like a revived Roman Empire. That will be the last purely human empire to exist on the earth, because it is that empire that is in power when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and he will destroy it and it will never rise again. So how do I know that? Well, let's take a look back at, uh, well, you, you don't have to, I'll just read it to you. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So back to Daniel 7, the ten-horned beast has to be the same kingdom as the ten toes of the image, because in Daniel 7.18 it says this, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Okay? So there's no kingdom after that. That is Christ's kingdom on the earth, and it's clear in the scripture that it says that the kingdoms of this world, 
all of the kingdoms that remain at the time of the coming of the Lord, all of them will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's it. His is the last and final kingdom, and it remains forever. So the story ends the same way. The ten toes are destroyed. The ten horns are destroyed. We read that uh, in, in Daniel. Then Daniel had a very disturbing part of the dream that troubled him greatly. And he wanted to know the specific interpretation of this part of the dream. And so this is found in Daniel 7, verse 8. Daniel says this, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. And then we're introduced uh, in this part here to a, a new character. So in the original picture that you saw here, there, were a beast, there was a beast like this with ten horns on it. Each of those ten horns represented one king, but united together as one empire. And those ten kings were in alliance with each other in this one empire. But something happens to three of them. One comes up and uproots three of those kings, and he takes their place. And so now you have a beast with eight horns, okay? Seven of the kings that still remain, and this one little one that started little, and he rises uh, from among these kings. It says in verse 8, And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. The king, this king, this little horn that starts, uh, has a small beginning. He's from the revived Roman Empire. He overthrows three kings. He speaks pompous words. In the uh, book of Revelation, the words aren't just pompous, meaning boastful, but rather they're blasphemous words. And it's very clear from, uh, from Revelation that he speaks blasphemies against God, against his temple, against God's people, and he is a blasphemous king who is uh, ruling at that time. And we will discover that this little king is actually the Antichrist. Okay, Many of you have heard the word Antichrist, um, and this is who we're talking about this morning. How can we know this is the meaning? Well, look down to verse 19. So we're still in Daniel 7, verse 19. Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. So I'm going to stop there for just a second. This horn is a king. He is the Antichrist. He is a pompous, blasphemous king. And it says that his appearance was greater than the others. What it really means is this. Not only did he appear physically, that's not really what it's talking about, but he became greater than the other kings who were there. He came to actually lead this alliance of nations as the king of kings and the Lord of lords over them. Okay, not the king of kings, Jesus Christ, but of that group of kings. He was the king of kings. 
Um, verse 21, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. So the interpretation is pretty clear here. The fourth beast is the last of the four kingdoms, so it's a revived Roman Empire. The Antichrist will be in charge of this kingdom, for it says that he's greater than his fellow kings. The Antichrist will have a worldwide influence, clearly stated. The Antichrist is also the one who persecutes the saints. You say, well, wait a minute. Aren't we saints? Aren't believers in Christ saints? Yeah, we're called saints. But there's a different saint here than the uh, church. The church at this point will have already been taken away. It will be already raptured. The saints he's talking about here are the tribulation saints. The tribulation is a period from the... time of the rapture until the second coming of the Lord to the earth. So the saints he's talking about here in this passage are the tribulation saints. Um, he persecutes the um, tribulation saints for a period of three and a half years, and this persecution will end at the coming of the Lord to the earth to destroy this kingdom and all that it uh, contains. The Lord, it says, judges in favor of his saints and come back, comes back and sets up his kingdom at the end of the tribulation period. Okay, back to verse 9. So you got your finger in two places. We're going simultaneously through the vision and the interpretation. Verse 9, part of the vision. I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, his wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given um, to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season in a time. What's the interpretation of that? Start looking at verse 25. He, that is the pompous king, shall speak pompous words against who? The Most High. So he is speaking blasphemies against God. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and laws. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time, but the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. It's very interesting that the first three kingdoms that we looked at, the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Grecian kingdom, they were all defeated by military might. Okay? The other kingdom came in behind them, destroyed them by military might. 
the final kingdom is not destroyed by military might. It is destroyed by divine judgment. God himself destroys that last kingdom. Okay? Um, so that's one thing to consider. The, um, we know that the Roman Empire was not destroyed by God coming, was it? Did the, did the Lord Jesus Christ come and destroy the Roman Empire? No, he did not. And so that is still future. That is still coming. The ten-toed kingdom or the ten-horned kingdom is yet to come, and that will be the kingdom in place at the time of the Lord's return. Um, again, I want to just emphasize something here. It says that the pompous king, that the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and a half a time. Now, we're going to look at this more next week, but I can tell you up front that what this refers to is a three-and-a-half-year period. A time in this reference means a, um, a year. Times, plural, means two years. And a half a time means half a year. So that's three-and-a-half, if I do my math right. One and two and a half is two, three-and-a-half, right? So three-and-a-half years that this king will be persecuting the saints. And it's during this period of time that he will actually be prevailing over them. And so it will be a time when there will be more saints martyred than there will be alive. Okay? It's very clear from the scripture that this is the case. During that three and a half year period, and we'll find out later that this is actually at the last three and a half years of the tribulation period when this pompous king, the Antichrist, will be defeating the tribulation saints. It has nothing to do with the church. It has to do with those who are saved during the tribulation period. But there's a time limit, three and a half years. Okay, back to verse 13 now. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given, this is to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. Wow. <laughs> Finally, we get to a kingdom that will not be overthrown. And it is a kingdom of righteousness. It is a kingdom when the right king is in place and he is the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdoms of this world, as I mentioned, shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Finally, verse 27 confirms this. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions shall serve him and obey him. Now, we have now come to the answer to one of our questions. Okay? That's a long way. It's taken us a week uh, and a half. And uh, we've come back to the, the answer to our question. The question was, um, what does it mean when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled? And when will that end? And so what it is, as I mentioned, the times of the Gentiles started when Babylon invaded Jerusalem and took the people captive. 
and Jerusalem has been under Gentile domination, or the better way of saying it is that they have not had full reign over Jerusalem since that time. Uh, and so the, that time will continue on through our lifetime. It will continue on through the tribulation period right to the very end when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and he sets up his kingdom and his throne in Jerusalem. And, it will reign, and he will reign forever and ever. So the answer to the question is, when does the, uh, the times of the Gentiles, when are they fulfilled? When Jesus comes back to the earth to set up his kingdom on the earth. So now we've answered the one question. We have one more question to go. What is the abomination of desolation? And are your bags packed ready to go? Are you ready to flee? Okay, that's the, that's the next question. So the uh, answer is found in Daniel chapter 9. So if you could turn there, uh, verse 25. Daniel 9.25 says this, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself." Um, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Well, it's a lot, there's a lot in this passage, and we really don't have time to look at the entire thing today. We're going to look at it in more detail next week. But it deserves more attention than we can give it today. Um, but I want to point out several things. First, verse 25 and the first part of verse 26 refers to Messiah, the Prince. Who is that? Jesus. Okay, Messiah the Prince is Jesus. And it says that Messiah the Prince will be cut off, but not for himself. What does that refer to, do you think? The cross. Did Jesus die on the cross for his own sins? No, he did not. He had no sin. He died on the cross for your sins and for my sins. And when Messiah, Jesus Christ, suffered and died on the cross, it was for full payment of your sins. So that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the reason he died on the cross. So that your sins could be forgiven and that you could avoid what is to come. And we're going to look at what's to come in just a minute. Okay? That is the reason Jesus died. So it says, Messiah, the prince, shall be cut off, but not for his own sins. It's for the sins of uh, the people, for us. Verse 26b, the end of verse 26, introduces another prince. And it says, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. 
Who are the people who destroyed the city and the sanctuary after Jesus died? Who are they? What, what kingdom? It was the Romans. Titus entered into the city in 70 AD. He destroyed the temple. They burned it. They just took stone after stone um, off each other from the temple to get at the gold that had melted. And it fulfilled exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ would say, what the Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples, that not one stone would be left upon another. And they said, well, when will this happen? Well, that happened in 70 AD. That's when Titus came in and he destroyed. He was a Roman. And it says of uh, those people, it says, and the people of the prince who is to come. So who, is, who are the people? It's the Roman people. And from those Roman people, a prince will come. It's not Jesus Christ. He wasn't Roman. So he's talking about another prince here. Um, he shall or they shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So there's a prince to come. And this prince is to come is from the revived Roman Empire. This means he must be a Gentile if he's coming from the Roman Empire. He is the Antichrist represented uh, by Daniel's dream of the little horn that we looked at earlier. And he's going to be the head. So this is the Antichrist that Daniel is talking about here in uh, verse 26. One of the signs, well, remember the disciples asked the questions. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And one of the signs of the Lord's coming to the earth is that the Antichrist will set up a peace treaty with the nation of Israel at the very beginning of the tribulation period, and it will be for seven years. And he will sign a peace accord, and Israel will buy into it. They will believe that it really will be for their peace and for their prosperity, and they'll sign it. And they'll come into a relationship with the Antichrist that is going to backfire on them big time. And for three and a half years, they're going to think peace and safety. They're going to think of uh, an enjoyable time. But they will face tribulation for that first three and a half years. But in the middle of that th seven-year period of, of the peace treaty, in the middle of it, the Antichrist will break the peace treaty. He will enter into the temple of God and he will set himself up as God to be worshipped as God, and he will not only personally visit the temple that way, he will offer a sacrifice, which is an abomination of desolation that we're talking about here, uh, in the temple, which he has no right to do, and he will set up an idol of himself. Actually, it'll be the, the, uh, the prophet that'll do that. He'll set up an idol in the temple as a... Uh, uh, an object of worship. So the Antichrist will not only be worshipped personally when he's present, but when he's absent, his idol or his image will also be worshipped. Okay? So that's what's going to come at the middle of the three and a half years. And when we looked at that passage earlier today, when you see the abomination of desolation set up in the temple, get out. Get out of Jerusalem as fast as you can because that is the indication that the great tribulation has begun. Now, I want to explain that. The tribulation period is a seven-year period. It's divided into two parts. They're equal. The first three and a half years is part of the tribulation. 
But at that point in time, the scripture talks about the middle and following as being the great tribulation. It is an astounding period of desolation on the earth and particularly to the Jewish people. It will make, and I, I, I hate to say it this way, but it'll make the Holocaust look like a Sunday school picnic. It's that bad. It is terrible what is coming. Um, so, the signing of the peace treaty marks the beginning of the tribulation period. The abomination of desolation marks the middle of that seven-year period. The seven-year tribulation period is like a sandwich, okay? This, in fact, the second coming of Christ is like a sandwich in a way. There's the bread on one side, there's the meat in the middle, and then there's the bread on the other side to make up a sandwich. The second coming of Christ has two parts. First of all, he comes to the air for his saints, for his church. And we will be caught up and gathered together to be with the Lord. There's a wonderful passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. It says this, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, Christians who have already died. Don't be ignorant about what's happened to them. And then he goes on to say this, um, Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with them, with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and so shall, to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. What is, he, what is he saying? He's saying this, look. Anyone during the church period who has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and has died, their bodies remain in the grave. The Bible says this of believers. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our soul and our spirit, the moment we close our eyes here on earth in our final breath, those who are believers wake up in heaven. Their soul and their spirit are with Christ instantly. Their bodies are put in the grave. But God is going to resurrect those bodies. And he's going to give us a new body. A body that is a glorious body like his body. A body that does not decay, does not wear out, does not need sleep. Does not get old, does not get sick. He's going to give us new bodies that we might be able to, they're bodies that are suited for heaven. And he says this, that those who have died believing in Christ, when the Lord comes at the time of the rapture, they will rise first. The graves are going to open and their bodies will rise and they will be reunited with their soul and their spirit in a glorified body. And those who are still living at that time, and I hope it's today, those who are still living when he comes back are going to be translated or caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The Lord is not coming the first time to the earth. He's coming to the clouds. We're going to meet him there. And he's going to give us the ability to fly to heaven. I've had dreams like that. <laughs> this will be reality. Okay? 
We are going to be with the Lord forever and forever and forever. Never to end. That's the truth of the gospel for those who believe uh, the gospel. Notice um, at this particular coming of the second coming of the Lord, we're caught up. And that's the end of the church age. And it's the beginning of the tribulation on earth. We will be in heaven with the Lord. What's going to happen to us in heaven at that time? Well, there's a lot of things that take place in that seven-year period. There is the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is the uh, judgment of believers, not whether they should be in heaven or not. You know the story, you've heard it many times. Somebody died and went to the heaven's gate, and St. Peter said, why should I let you in? That's all nonsense. It doesn't work that way. If you're in heaven, it's because you're already qualified to be there because you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and you are covered by his shed blood on the cross. Simple as that. Okay? There's no question once you're in heaven as whether you should be there or not. There's nobody kicked out of heaven. Okay? You're there because you have already believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're there because that's your home. That's what he has prepared for you. So you have um, the great... Uh, you, have, you have the judgment of the believers, but the judgment there isn't so much one of, well, should you be there or should you not be there? The judgment instead is, what have you done for Christ as a believer? And the Lord is looking and he's asking this question, how can I reward you? He wants to reward you. God is a good God. And he gives good gifts and he wants to reward those who are his saints, who have loved him and loved his appearing and have lived in such a way that they have anticipated it. And he wants to reward us. But on earth, uh, there is a terrible time of desolation. The Antichrist will be on earth at that time. He will be different than any other king, and his kingdom will be different than all that preceded him. For he will be given power to reign and to rule from Satan himself. You talk about somebody who is possessed, this man is possessed, not by a demon, but by Satan. This man is a liar and a deceiver, and, it's, and the reason for that, of course, is that he's following his father, who is the liar and a deceiver. That is uh, Satan. He will claim to be God, and he will demand worship as God. In 2 Thessalonians 2, it says this, He is the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, there's a religious figure at this time as well known as the false prophet, and as I said, he will set up an image of the Antichrist in the temple for all to worship. And he demands worship. He commands it from all people all over the world uh, to worship the Antichrist in his image. I'm going to read a passage to you from Revelation 13. It says this, He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So if you don't worship the Antichrist, if you don't worship his image, it's a death sentence. 
He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. And all mankind will have to have that mark on their hand, the right hand, or on their forehead in order to transact business, in order to transact any kind of anything. You want to live in a house? You want to pay your mortgage? You want to buy groceries? You want to buy gas? You want to live? You have to have that mark. Simple as that. That's the way it will be. And there will be a one-world government, and there will be a one-world religion, and there will be a one-world economic system, and those who do not comply will be persecuted, and they will be killed. Those who are true believers, of course, will not submit to this. And they said, they'll say, no, I will not take the mark of the beast. I will not take his mark on my hand. I will not take his mark on my forehead. And so many will die because they refuse to comply with the law of the land. Troublesome times. And as I mentioned earlier, there will probably be more martyrs during this period of time of those who refuse to, do, to take this mark than those who are living believers. As I said, the Antichrist will be a liar and a deceiver. He will be empowered by Satan. He will attract a huge following and perform many, the Bible calls them, lying signs and wonders, or signs and lying wonders. Uh, And he will deceive so many uh, so that they will not believe the gospel and be saved. And the sad truth of it is this. The Bible tells us very clearly, I'm going to look at this passage in a minute. The Bible tells us very clearly that those who have an opportunity to believe the gospel now... If they refuse and the Lord comes back in the rapture to take his church home and those people still live on the earth, they will not believe the gospel during the tribulation period. It's, it's impossible. And why is it impossible? Well, I've often said this to people, and sometimes I think they, sound, they look confused at me when I say this. God gives us what we want. Do you know that? God gives us what we want. Do you want the truth? Then seek the truth and God will give it to you. Do you reject the truth of God? Then God will allow you to believe a lie. It's just that simple. You say no to God's truth, he'll give you a lie. God isn't giving you the lie, but he allows a deception to come over you. Do you want light or do you want darkness? Do you want to live in sin? and you, you long to live in sin and, and take pleasure in your sin, God will allow you to do that. And you'll suffer the consequences of that. But if you want truth and you want light and you want life, he'll give you that too if you want it. Those who put off or refuse to believe will go into the tribulation period and they will not be able to believe at that time. They will not only be left behind at the rapture, but God will send, the Bible says this, God will send a strong delusion upon them so that they cannot be saved. Instead, they will believe the lie of the Antichrist and perish with him. In the early days of the church, people came to a 
church uh, in Thessalonica. And they, they tried to trouble the Thessalonians and say, you know what, we're in the tribulation period now. And they began to wonder, well, are we really? Because they were suffering persecution. And they thought, well, maybe we are. And it began to trouble them. And Paul wrote to them, and he says, it's not happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. I had a conversation with a lady a few weeks ago who said the same thing to me. She says, are you kidding? There's so much trouble. We're in the tribulation period. No, we're not. No, we're not. Take a look at 2 Thessalonians with me. We're going to spend just a couple minutes here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians 2, begin reading in verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. This is the Antichrist who will be revealed. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you remember that when I was with you, I still, sorry, that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. This actually has a reference to the Holy Spirit of God who is restraining sin right now. He's holding it back. If the Holy Spirit of God were not holding back sin, I I won't say the phrase as they would say it in in, uh, common language, but it'll be horrible. It'll be horrible. When the restrainer is taken away, and when, when is he taken away? Where is the Holy Spirit right now? He is dwelling in believers. And we are the salt of the earth, the scripture says. We, in effect, are God's spokespeople to the world saying, hey, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't live like this. You shouldn't behave like this. Look at what God's word says. And in a sense, we're restraining, holding back the tide of sin. Take the believers out of here. Take the Holy Spirit out of here who is restraining. And the world will go crazy. It will go an absolute mess. Nothing will restrain sin at that point. Lawlessness one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteousness, unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And I want to just say this to you right now. If you have heard the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and he paid for your sins in full, you can this day believe him and be saved and avoid all of this. That's the truth of the gospel today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. But if you don't, verse 11 says, and for this reason, because people reject the gospel, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. For those of you who are not saved, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? There's everything to gain and nothing to lose. 
trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do that today. For those who are believers, I want to say with all of you who are believers, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you wait until the rapture of the church, it will be too late. One last passage, and I want to have you respond with me as we read this passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll read verse, starting with verse 1. There are two types of people in this passage, and they're referred to over and over and over again. And the interesting thing is that every one of you here this morning are one of these two types of people. Okay? There's nobody excluded. And I want you to think about this as we talk about this passage, who you are. Who are you in this passage? And so I'm going to stop every time I get to a personal pronoun, and you're going to answer a question for me. Is he talking about believers, or is he talking about unbelievers, those who have not yet believed the gospel? Verse 1, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you, believers or unbelievers? Believers, he just said it, brethren. You, believers, have no need that I should write to you, believers. For you, yourselves, believers, believers, know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. How does a thief come, by the way? Quietly. Daniel went uh, to the house yesterday. We're not living there right now. And uh, he went into the backyard. It was 6.30. It was dark. And he went to the back shed in the backyard, and the people in the house came out to beat him up because they thought he was a thief. And he says, I'm the owner's son. And quickly they calmed down. But that's how a thief goes about his business, in the dark. He comes quickly. The point that the Lord is making here is this. When Jesus comes again, it's going to be like a thief in the night. Quickly. You're not going to be expecting it. If you were expecting the thief, wouldn't you prepare? So he's coming. We don't know when, but he's coming, and he'll come quickly when we're not expecting it. For you yourselves, believers, believers, know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Verse 3. For when they, unbelievers, say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, unbelievers, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, can we make it more obvious? <laughs> Believers, okay, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief in the night. You, believers, are all sons of light and sons of the day. We, believers, are, uh, are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others, unbelievers, do. But let us watch and be sober. For those unbelievers who sleep, sleep at night, and those unbelievers who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us, believers, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet of hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us, to wrath. Very key verse. Okay? The tribulation is not for believers who are part of the church. They're not. Okay? 
For God did not appoint us believers to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we believers wake or sleep, we believers should live together with him, therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you are also doing. That's what believers should be doing as we wait for the second coming of the Lord. Okay? We are not appointed to wrath. But let me just say this one more time. If you don't know Jesus Christ yet, what is holding you back? Okay? The wrath of God is coming. It's real. All of the other prophecies that we've looked at came true to the letter. These will as well to the letter. Trust in him. You have nothing to lose. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for warning us for providing clear admonition that we should believe this day. This is the day of salvation, and we just cry out to you for any here who do not know you yet, that today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, deliver souls from hell. Deliver souls from uh, bondage to um, and blindness and darkness and to uh, um, following after Antichrist, Lord. We just pray that you would... Work a work today in the hearts of those who don't know you. Lord, for those who do know you, we pray that we might live soberly, that we might live as those who are of the day and not of the night, that, Lord, we might put aside uh, foolish things, put aside dark things, put aside sin, that we might live for you in light of your soon coming. And we say with the saints, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray it in, in your name. Amen. Thank you. The meeting is over.